Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Stamwell Major. In this episode we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on Chapter 11. Chapter 11. A Conversation in His Eyes He speaketh not, and yet there lies a conversation in his eyes. A quote from Longfellow. It was good to see Content and Arthur Rogers lying peacefully together by the stelling. Sloping ground dotted with large mango trees led up to the prison walls, and a few huts stood near the river bank. The river was about half a mile wide, and each side was covered with jungle. Downstream of us, the Mazaruni River joined the Essequibo in an open expanse of water inlaid with islands. Past these islands nearly 400 years ago, Drake and other adventurers had conned their clumsy craft. The Indians soon learned that the white men cared only for gold, and they found a simple way of ridding themselves of the newcomers. Up the river, they told them, is much gold. Deep in the jungles is a city whose very streets are paved with gold. And the white men sailed farther, and sweated and toiled in search of El Dorado, the myth an Indian invented. After her exhortations in the Atlantic, Content was due for her overhaul and for the inevitable repaint. We decided to experiment with a new colour scheme and put aluminum paint on her top sides. The result, with bulwark and chain plates in blue, was certainly striking, but we could never decide whether it was very beautiful or very repulsive. Our square soles had been bleached to a glaring white, but as they were to be temporarily demoted to awnings, we tanned and proofed them with a liberal coat of canvo, which gave us protection against the sun and the rain. It was now that the spreaders, damaged and temporarily repaired off the coast of Portugal so long ago, were finally replaced. Ernest constructed a substantial new spreader out of local silver barley wood, and so shaped it that there was a small seat on each side of the mast which could be used when conning the ship through reefs. When Content was in Georgetown, we had been suddenly awakened early one morning by a splintering crash. A huge timber barge had drifted down on us and had snapped off our bowsprit, fortunately sparing the mast. By great good fortune, we had been able to fit a new bowsprit free of cost and in a very short time, which is most remarkable in British Guiana. We now made use of the broken spar by laboriously carving a pair of dinghy oars out of the solid wood, which showed perseverance however misguided. Sooner or later, our ten-foot dinghy, bought in Las Palmas after the dramatic end of the pram, would be converted to sail, so Don undertook the construction of a centreboard and case by cutting a slot in the garboard strake. This case was a constant source of pride to Don and of amazement to us, for it remained the only part of the dinghy which never leaked. While Ernest and I had been trotting round the hinterlands, Len had had to leave us for several months, hoping to join us in Trinidad. He had, however, been suitably replaced, so that our complement was again four. The additional member, Rum Swizzle, was a newcomer to sail. He was, in fact, a newcomer to life itself, having been born only a few weeks before he signed on. Rum Swizzle was a tiny pup, an absurd, tawny, long-legged pup, with a stubby, high-frequency tail and feet the size of fenders. The friends who gave Swizzle to us claimed a long and impressive pedigree for his mother 
and a long and fruitless search for his father. Perhaps it was because of this indefinable air of breeding inherited from his fox terrier mother that Swizzle took command of content from the moment he came aboard. While he stood reverently apart, Swizzle briefly surveyed his new surroundings, sniffed and gave a prodigious yawn. Though he was very small at this stage, he possessed a disproportionately long leg at each corner and an enormous mouth. This, we were gleefully assured by Tom and Diana from the Arthur Rogers, indicated his later development into a towering monster with a voracious appetite. But after he had fallen overboard four times and down the main hatch thrice in the first two days, we regained some of our aplomb and returned to our work. Caring for a boat is very much like caring for a garden. It is impossible on looking back to remember how so much time was required to produce so little tangible result. Though we were kept hard at work during the months we lay there, and though each lost about 15 pounds in the process, there seemed to be almost as much to be done on the day we left as on the day we arrived. The prison authorities very kindly allowed Ernest to equip one of the rooms in the prison building as a dark room. As a result, on those days on which he did not fall asleep up there, we were able to see some of the photographs taken since the last burst of activity in the Canary Islands. While I provided a little background music on the typewriter, Don, concentrating most of his attention on the boat itself, was inspired to do some oil painting for the first time during the voyage. His first work, done on a piece of patching canvas, was a view of content under square rig and was sold to Len for 500 cigarettes before his departure. The second, a view of the Marazuni, was sold to one of Bartica's two hotels for $5 and presumably still graces its walls. It was Ernest who effected this sale for Don, while very conscious that art itself was not sufficient reward for his labours under the circumstances, was too modest to peddle his own wares. Even $5 was a welcome addition to our funds. We had arrived in Georgetown with very few shore-going clothes after the theft in Las Palmas, but could scarcely afford the considerable outlay involved in equipping the crew with new suits. Then we remembered the ballast. Content carried a considerable quantity of internal lead ballast, and ever since the addition of the unusually heavy copper sheathing, she had been floating below her marks. To rid her of some of this ballast would benefit both Content and ourselves. We found a market without difficulty, and the lead beneath our feet soon became clothes on our backs. One of the chief advantages to us of our anchorage at the penal settlement was that living was extremely cheap, cheaper than any other place we had found. For a few pennies, we could have a breakfast of pineapple, pawpaw, grapefruit and bananas, which could be bought a hundred yards from the Stelling. For the rest of our shopping, we went to Bartica, two miles away by police launch. Bartica was nothing more than a village, but since it was the only place to which people in Georgetown could easily go for a short holiday, it had acquired two hotels. The centre of its cultural life was the dilapidated wooden building of the movie theatre, where sometimes on a Saturday evening the three of us would go to see films of varying vintage. As interesting as the film itself was the audience. Its tastes were simple. What it wanted on the screen was a fight, a good bare-knuckle brawl of the western breed. Then the people went mad with excitement and for several minutes the screen dialogue was completely inaudible. 
The theatre had become a forest of flailing arms and chattering voices as each member of the audience gave his neighbour a blow-by-blow reconstruction of the fight with graphic illustrations of the more dramatic moments. Scattered among the people, we used to see a merry Indians whose only glimpse of civilization had been obtained on Bartica's earthen roads. On the screen they were watching the teeming life of a modern metropolis or the lavishness of a Hollywood extravaganza. How, I used to wonder, could they possibly bridge the gap between that metropolis and their hut by the river, between the Hollywood musical and their tribal dance? In Bartica, there lived a handful of white people whose lives were bound up with the stands of tall timber in the country behind them. Since the partial loss of the teak forest of Burma, the tough, worm-resistant greenheart of British Guiana had become increasingly valuable, and an effort was being made to extract and exploit other types of timber too. It was the task of botanists like Fanshawe to discover and classify the great variety of species in the jungles, and of men like Taylor to organise the extraction of the timber. To the Fanshawes and the Taylors we were deeply grateful for the sheer pleasure of sitting in a cool bungalow for the evening and for the calm, friendly atmosphere of a British home which we could always find there amid the dusty roads, shouting throngs and fly-ridden market stalls. We were surprised to find, on content, that we were not troubled at all by mosquitoes and were always able to sleep on deck without a net. A friend, talking about British Guiana, had said, If it bites, we have it. Yet even Don, who is usually a living cornucopia for any mosquito in the vicinity, went almost unscathed. There was, however, a whole world of insect life around us and beneath our feet. Guiana is noted for its ants, but only once did they give us any trouble. For some reason, a colony decided to go to sea. They came swinging down the jetty, passed straight over the Arthur Rogers and swarmed onto the ropes, leading to content. The alarm was raised, and for half an hour we waged a dogged war of defence, putting kerosene on our warps to drive them back and convince them that there was a better life ashore. Sometimes we saw a line of green trickling across the ground and when we investigated we found a colony of brown ants with disproportionately developed mandibles. Gripped in these, each ant carried a fragment of green leaf, several times his own size, which he waved about like a banner. These are the leaf-cutting ants who will gradually strip a whole tree and carry the particles along a small worn path to the nest in which they are to be stored. While strolling along a path one day, I came upon the most vicious fight I have ever seen. The arena was a sandy patch on the track, and the contestants were two rival bands of one species of ant. The ferocity and pace of the battle was horrible. There were a series of individual bouts in which the ants rushed at each other and grappled and swayed and rolled over and over in a frenzy. Not for a second was there any relaxation in the pace. If one ant managed to wrench himself free of his opponent's jaws, he would rush to the aid of a friend. Here and there, detached from the fray, bodies lay faintly twitching. For nearly twenty minutes I watched, and when I left the battle, it was still undecided. In the river itself, we were warned, one might find the parai, a small carnivorous fish which had a habit of biting off a finger or toe, and the electric eel whose contact could give one a shock severe enough to paralyse a swimmer. But we were never troubled by either of these, though we were careful when swimming, to avoid rocks and wooden jetties by which these creatures liked to lurk. In the interior, Ernest and I had encountered a type of flea called a jigger. 
The female of the species burrows under the skin, very often around a finger or toenail, and then swells to the size of a small pea and lays her eggs. At first there is not much irritation, and on the few occasions on which we were attacked by these jiggers, we noticed nothing until a swelling like a small blister appeared. This is then attacked with a needle, the skin being laid back and the egg sac extracted in one piece. Apart from the cavity in the flesh which remained for a short time, there seemed to be no ill effects. One morning, Don arose from his bed on deck and shook out a piece of canvas which had been folded under his pillow. Onto the deck, at his feet, plopped the thin, black coils of a Labaria snake. The Labaria is second only to the Bushmaster as the most deadly snake in Guiana, but on this occasion, the snake appeared to be more surprised than Don and quickly abandoned ship. Fortunately, we never came face to face with the Bushmaster, the largest poisonous snake in the world and one of the few which will attack on sight. Their poison is not usually virulent but injected in so large a quantity that death, and a very agonizing death it is, is certain if the bite is not treated immediately. The Bushmaster's only weakness is that it makes a hissing sound just before striking and that second of warning could make an eternity of difference. The Labaria is able to swim and one morning we spotted one swimming out alongside the stelling towards content. Once again, the alarm was raised. We grabbed some long sticks and began the delicate operation of guiding the snake with a series of gentle prods whenever he came within range. I have seen a good many snakes during my life, but that is the only time I have ever chucked one under the chin. We decided that it would be prudent to make our prodding as polite as possible and to instill a feeling of suggestion rather than insistence into it. As the Labaria neared the boat, we stood on the stern and very gently tried to turn it away. It swung towards us, its head raised a few inches above the surface, beady little eyes staring up at us. We gave another polite push, heading it out towards the river, and after hesitating for a moment, the Labaria began to swim out into midstream, and we watched it until its head was lost among the ripples. We heard of a curious antidote to snake bite called the Jaamora, or snake stone. According to the story, the snake stone comes from India and is said to be formed from the brain of a sacred cow. It is grey in colour with a white streak. If applied to a bite, it will adhere to the flesh of its own accord and is left there until it indicates that its work is done by falling off. The stone is now placed in milk until its original colour, which it lost during the process, returns. It sounded a typical legend, but there was a curious thing about the Jaamora. We spoke to three men who vouched for it, a government officer, a priest, and a doctor. Swizzle had fortunately steered clear of bushmasters and electric eels and was becoming a very accomplished member of the crew. Our training of him was rendered easier because Tom and Diana had a very attractive black bitch named Anafu on board Arthur Rogers. Anafu acted as foster mother to Swizzle, teaching him to run and jump and chase sticks and many other things that a dog must know. We decided that if Swizzle was to lead the life of a sea dog, we would have to give him a special toughening course. So while he was still very young, we took him over obstacle courses in the jungle, forcing him to leap ditches and climb over fallen trees. To make him nimble-footed, we picked him up and threw him from one to another like a ball and took him out in the dinghy on choppy days. We also gradually introduced him to swimming and diving, and I undertook to train him to heal. As a result, 
he developed into a very fit, hardy animal who could balance on the dinghy gunwale in any waters, could dive overboard and swim half a mile without any hesitation, and was obedient and full of life. But the most difficult part of the training was the house training. To carry a sandbox would not be feasible, so we set out to teach him to use the extreme after end of the deck where a bucket of water would be a simple eraser. There are many human beings who do not know one end of a boat from the other, so it was not surprising that Swizzle had some difficulty in learning. However, perseverance gradually brought results and his final vindication came one day when a tropical downpour happened to coincide with his internal crisis. Swizzle looked unhappily out from under the awning while we watched tensely. He faltered for a moment, then put his tail down and scampered out to the after deck amid tumultuous applause from the three of us. The fact that Ernest had violated his privacy by leaving a pair of shoes in the critical spot was unfortunate, but did not detract in the slightest from Swizzle's triumph. Of course, Swizzle soon became a favourite with the white-clothed prisoners who worked in the grounds about us or on the prison farm. These prisoners seemed to lead a remarkably pleasant existence. Their hours of work were not long and every Saturday afternoon they assembled on the playing field for cricket and athletics. One great day there was a full-scale sports meeting and as Content had swelled the prize list with two tins of corned beef, we strolled along to the field and found a race in progress. A short, dark prisoner was beetling round in the lead at high revs while a long, lanky man, apparently equipped with reduction gear, loped along at his heels, obviously in danger of treading on his opponent at every stride. Don turned to one of the prison officers. How long is this race? he asked. The officer pondered for a moment. Oh, there's no time limit, he answered brightly. After that, he came as no surprise when we noticed that the Union Jack, fluttering bravely from the flagpole, was flying upside down. Our local reputation was immeasurably enhanced on the occasion of the official tour of the governor of the colony and his wife around the area. This very charming pair paused to go aboard the yachts and the officers of the penal settlement were probably pained to see His Excellency and Her Ladyship drinking tea out of our huge enamel mugs. As July and August slipped behind us, we began to prepare for our departure in September. We had spent five months up here in the jungle and Ernest and Don were, I think, anxious to move on. So one hot, windless morning we cast off our lines and motored down the Essequibo, bound for Georgetown, where we would take stores aboard. Georgetown has a particularly bad reputation for waterfront thieves, and we began to appreciate the advantage of having a dog, of which the West Indian is very much afraid. For several days we anchored in a place past which the river fishermen paddled their canoes every evening, we could see them avidly scanning our decks for possible loot, so we made a practice of cleaning out our 45 revolver whenever we saw the first of the boats approaching. As they passed by, we spun the chamber and peered down the barrel, and at the same time coaxed Swizzle into baring his teeth, even if only in a grin. These thieves take their profession seriously and will often choose a night when it is raining heavily. This drowns any noise on deck, and in order to make apprehension more difficult, they sometimes grease their bodies and clamber aboard naked. After about a week in Georgetown, we had the last of the stores aboard and had had the boat thoroughly fumigated with DDT to make life more difficult for the tribe of cockroaches which shared our fortunes. With the ebb tide beneath us, we set sail, waved goodbye to our good friends, the Priscilla family, 
and stood out of the Demerara. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.